I thought, you know, I want to work in film just because I realized that the previous artist gets to kind of sit the closest to the director. <laughs> and, you know, in my head, I always wanted to make a movie. So that's like, that's in the end, you know, that's the kind of a goal, right? So like, okay, well, this would be such a great opportunity to, you know, sit next to these like amazing directors, have them tell me notes, and I can understand how they're thinking about stuff. The strategy will be, I'll go there, I'll try to work on movies, learn from all the people there, and then try to come back. I had that strategy when I graduated, and that's essentially what I did. Worked out in LA for a while, and then Francisco, and Sydney, and London, and then uh, came back. Between the creative power at your fingertips and the lifestyle that can create, there's no career like being an artist in the 21st century. Hi, my name is Justin Weiss, the founder and host of the Creator Curriculum. It's our goal to help you, the modern day artist, realize that your portfolio is a passport to wherever you want to go. For our first episode, our guest is Arsen Arzumani. We met working together at The Mill New York, where I learned he was a senior previs artist with multiple film credits under his belt, including Ready Player One, Beauty and the Beast, Spider-Man, Jurassic World, and the Lego Batman movies. He's also directed his own CG personal films that demonstrate huge imagination beyond the day job. He's very kindly agreed to talk to me to share his experience as a working artist and as a freelancer. Hey Justin, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. If you look at your site, you've got you got so many sections. You got photography, you have short films, and then like your professional body of work, sort of a wish list for most people in this industry. So I was wondering if you could just give us a rundown of where you started and how you got to where you are today. Right. Um, well, I guess I started off with. Uh, I went to actually went to Syracuse University for computer art to do kind of 3D animation. You know, kind of general. Didn't really know what aspect of 3D I wanted to do. Um, and then I transferred from there, which they had a horrible program that was essentially they were almost embezzling money in terms of how much resources were actually spent on the students. Uh, I. I Actually, specifically, I remember we watched a bunch of theses from other schools, and we watched SVAs, which is where I ended up transferring to, and we had a student tell us to turn it off while I was in Syracuse because it was making her depressed because our theses are so much worse, and, and that was literally the moment where I was like, all right, I got to get the hell out of here because uh, <laughs> clearly <laughs> I'm going to be competing with those people later, so like, you, know, you can put your head in the dirt for only so long. Um, yeah, for sure. But yeah, then I went to kind of SVA and through there I got a internship just sweeping floors at Nathan Love. So I was, I was originally the receptionist and I did such a horrible job there that I was then just hanging up decorations. I just get very nervous. I would like pick up the phone and be like, Nathan Love, hello, who are you? And they were like, Arson, stop talking to people on the phone. Uh, <laughs> And after a while, I kind of, yeah. When you say you were a receptionist, is that the internship? Is that what they make the intern do? Yeah, it was like a, it was like an internship where I was just like, just get a foot in the door type of deal. 
I was like, I'll do whatever. I mean, at the time I was, a uh, cause I lost the year when I transferred in. So I was on my second year in, uh, at SVA. So I actually, I didn't even know Maya when I started. I only knew Lightwave cause that's what Syracuse taught. No, not too many studios these days using Lightwave anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also like learning it, it was a disaster because there's no resources online. So you just have to buy this giant manual. And then you realize the worst part about a giant manual is you can't hit control F to find a keyword. You actually have to read. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's a lot more work than control F on a big document. Yeah, you got to check the table of contents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The encyclopedia. Yeah, it's like sounds like I'm describing something from the 17th century. <laughs> I know this is a bit of a history lesson. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Nathan Love was the first place where I kind of started working out. It's like a commercial studio in New York, and uh, you know, I kind of again just did the most banal kind of work, but even it was kind of interesting. Maybe people could take something away from that. Is when I was uh interning whenever i was asked to do something kind of ridiculous or stupid i mean not not that it was ridiculous but it's like you know it's not obviously i'm not going in there because i'm saying i really love hanging up christmas decorations and i want to keep rehanging them based on the whims of the office manager you know obviously it's not an ideal situation but i feel like anything you do you have to do it with a smile or just don't do it <laughs> meaning like if you do something with a frown which there was another intern with me who kind of did things with that attitude. Like I'm beyond this. Like I need, you know, like, why am I just hanging up Christmas day? You know, that was kind of like the vibe. And then, I mean, in the long run mm -hmm. that it just didn't last for that person. Unfortunately, it was, you know, a great person. Um, it was just kind of one thing that I've kind of have, cause I also have taught at SBA. So it's one thing I also try to kind of tell students, which is like, say if someone asks you to do something you don't want to do and they're your employer, you essentially have a list of options, right? You can either smile and do it, and then they'll have a positive notion of you. You can frown and do it, and then you're doing it, so you're doing the negative part you don't want to do. But also, no one gets a, a positive notion of you because no one really wants to be around someone who seems angry. Or if you really don't want to do it, you can just leave, just go home. <laughs> Those are your three, your three options. It's kind of yeah. Know, I think you chose the right one. Going home or doing it with a smile makes sense to me. The middle one where you do it with a frown makes no sense to me because you're doing the negative part, which is the work that you don't want to do, but you're actually not gaining anything from that either. So it's like a lose-lose scenario for you. Yeah, so I, I worked at Nathan as a, Nathan Love as a kind of office intern, and eventually I was uh, this guy, Dennis Karzareev. I was his, his intern. He was a matte painter, so I was doing simple models for him and all that type of stuff. And uh, it's actually got my biggest lesson, like the stuff I, most stuff I learned, I learned that I've used kind of for my career. I learned at Nathan Love specifically from Joe Berescano, who's the director and owner, uh, where he once, I think I myself never really liked rigging. So someone asked me to do, hey, can you do something in rigging? And I was like, oh, I don't really know how to do that. And then, you know, I think maybe probably Joe had overheard that. And like later on, it was kind of, you know, people were drinking. It was like kind of after work. I think it was some party. And he kind of pulled me aside and he gave me this long, long story of when he started out, how, uh, 
you know, he had to model a train. So he modeled a train and then they were like, can you texture it? And he was like, oh, uh, and they're like, you got to texture it. So you would texture it and like in a panic, Googling it or trying to figure out how to do this. And then be like, okay, now you light it. Like, oh God, now how do you do this? Now you add, you know, all this stuff. And I kind of took away from that. The reason he's telling me this is essentially like, as that's what I should do. Uh, and that's what I did after that. And I've done that actually perpetually in every job I've had where when things are difficult and hard and stuff, it kind of gets me excited. Like I want to work on stuff that's hard, stuff that's very easy, even if it's cool looking, but it, it's just very simple. There's nothing to discover. It's very simple. I get very, very bored of that very quick. I think maybe part of that is because of this, uh, that kind of first experience at Nathan Love, because, you know, that was the most, definitely the most stressful working time of my life where, you know, because I would, I literally took this to heart where I would agree to do things that were crazy, you know, like render, you know, we need a bunch of passes and like people are asking for the AO pass. I didn't even know what AO means. I'm like Googling what does AO mean? And like, I'm getting all these different definitions from different industries have a different you know, it's ambient occlusion, but you know, everyone has a different definition in different industries. I'm like, I don't know what the hell is going on. Uh, but then like, you know, out of this panic is that kind of, you know, going through the furnace that eventually you almost kind of, you like the panic in a way, which is a little bit, uh, a little bit weird, but yeah. So after, you know, I interned at Nathan, then I kind of freelanced there for a little bit and, uh, then kind of freelance a little bit another, but you know, one benefit of me being there was I met so many people who, you know, working in New York who are freelancers, they'll just kind of come in and come out. And I really, uh, you know, made a lot of friends with some of, you know, some of those people and then kind of hopped around some other studios, but this was all while I was still in school. Uh, so then when school was over, I applied to, like I wanted to work in film because I knew I wanted to do Preview as well. I was at Nathan Love. I figured out like, that's kind of the most interesting part to me, um, which mm -hmm. is like the cinematography and camera work. And I thought, you know, I want to work in film just because I realized that the Preview's artist gets to kind of sit the closest to the director. And, you know, in my head, I always wanted to make a movie. So that's like, that's in the end, you know, that's the kind of the goal, right? So I'm like, okay, well... Mm -hmm. This it would be such a great opportunity to, you know, sit next to these like amazing directors, have them tell me notes and I can understand how they're thinking about stuff. And then, you know, I could kind of learn from them and all that stuff. That was kind of the thought process. And then I also recognized while I was at Nathan, which is that uh, artists who were working in film and then they came to commercials for some reason, like not amongst the artists themselves, but especially amongst production, who are slightly more kind of tethered away, I thought there was like some kind of novelty factor to this person working on movies. That's that's what I experienced. So I thought I was like, okay, so maybe I should. The strategy will be: I'll go there, I'll try to work on movies, learn from all the people there, and then try to come back and only work on commercials because I actually like doing commercials the most. I mean, in terms of. I like the turnaround. I like it when it's really, really fast. I don't like spending, you know, three months working on three shots. It's kind of crazy. Um, mm. But that's kind of the strategy. And that's essentially, I had that strategy when I graduated and that's essentially what I did. So I worked out in LA for a while and then kind of moved around a little bit in like San Francisco and Sydney and London. And then 
uh, came back here and just went back to, you know, working on commercials. And uh, I, I have felt that with specifically with like di directors that are not CG directors, right? Because there's a lot of different types of directors you get on commercials. You get essentially CG artists that have gotten promoted over and over and over again. They are now the director. And then you have a lot of people also that have never maybe touched a computer in their life. <laughs> you know, they're the kind of, they're a director, they're maybe they don't draw, maybe they do draw, or, you know, they could do some boards, but they're not like doing an actual thing on the spot besides actually, you know, directing it through, which I sometimes prefer that more to, to the other case. But I noticed that those people uh, seem to really like the fact that they, you know, they say that someone who's working on films, working on their previs, like I'd hear them say that to clients and stuff like that. So that, again, that was part of the strategy before of like, kind of try to, you know, raise your worth, if that makes sense. Because I think practically speaking, I would say the artists I've worked with in New York in commercials are some of the best artists in the world, bar none. Doesn't matter. You go to ILM, you go to DD, wherever. It doesn't matter. But that, that's the perception. So all that matters, you know, is right. what is the perception of the people who are paying you, not what the reality is. That's why I think, you know, in the animation studio, when you're sitting around, you know, some people, you always have people work on different films, different projects. There is no type of hierarchy or anything where one is better than the other. That, that doesn't exist at all. And most artists understand that, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're onto something there. I mean, frankly, what you just said totally rings true. I mean, I saw your portfolio and the commercials were super impressive too. big names that I recognize. But when I see films, I'm like, that, that just has a different like premium quality to it. It's almost like a psychological effect because like the practicality, you know, isn't necessarily that different. But yeah, there is some strange psychological effect that I uh, I'll, I'll take advantage if I can. <laughs> it helps. Yeah, man. I mean, the silver screen just sounds more marketable than uh, an ad, you know? Yeah. People see an ad every 30 seconds when they go on YouTube, but a movie is like this more selective event, I think. It's also like sort of associated with the highest level of production just because of the fact that it's an hour and a half experience versus this like 30 second thing that you watch or are really force fed. Yeah, and, and the kind of also the role of I think the biggest difference I would say is that is the role of the director. So, like a director on commercials, you know, with all due respect to commercial directors, and you know, there's an awesome commercial director that I love working with, but they are not really what people think of the director. Like when people think director, mm. they think a film director, and because a film director is the beginning and the end of the kind of the creative section obviously they have the producer who's their boss and i've seen them yell at directors like film directors as well so that does happen uh but mm -hmm. they're still the tippy top in commercials you know you have your director on the studio then you have an agency director and then you have the client and so it's a completely different relationship and uh it's actually it's very similar to the relationship between me and the director that the director has to them and the client, which is they're trying to do what they told them to do. 
but they're trying to input, you know, their own little vision on They're trying to make it cooler in their own way. And then they're trying to sell that idea to them. So they, they latch onto it. And that's quite literally what I do when I do pre this just to the director. And then they do the same thing to the client. Um, so it's, it's a very similar kind of relationship, which is different in film because in film, the director is the end, you know, they, they don't report to anyone. They don't run an idea by someone unless, you know, they want to, but the only reason, you know, they'll get shot down by production or anything is because of budget. You know, we can't afford to film this. We can't do this, you know, that, that type of stuff. They're not going to say, Hey, I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> right. Right. Well, as a commercial director, you have a lot of people that can tell you that's a bad idea. Don't do it. I think most people don't get to spend that much time with film directors. Honestly, just hearing about it from you is exciting. To me, it still feels like this. It's impossible to get destination. Maybe because I don't know anyone that works in film. I'm sure you probably having a bunch of you know collaborators and coworkers and friends. It's kind of just like another place to work. Yeah, I mean, kind of. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, well, similar like the say, you know, the mill, uh, you know, that's a you know, huge commercial studio, you know, high end premium commercial studio. There could be, you know, someone is working at like, you know, a much smaller commercial studio that might kind of think, Oh, you know, things there must be so different. It's like this and this, but in reality, you know, the mill and say frame store. And, you know, there's not that many differences in terms of how these actual companies are actually, you know, operating. I think one nice thing with on the commercial side is, you do get uh, – it's just nice to be able to see something kind of finish through. And in some ways, you could have a stronger voice on the final look of the project just because there's less people involved. You know, There's five people involved, more likelihood that you, know, you can change it or impact something more meaningful than in a film where there's obviously you – know, it's going through so many layers of checks and all this other stuff. But I mean, with previews, right. it always goes through. That's kind of what attracts me to it to begin with, is because we know a lot of people hate doing previews. But uh, I think it's the most. It's probably the most. Most if most people have to pick one aspect of CG, if they do CG that they would not want to do, is probably previews and then UVing. I would imagine those two. <laughs> and rigging. Yeah. Well, I think I think more people like rigging. It, it seems like maybe maybe it's just they're more in demand now. A friend of mine who I worked with used to say like, previous artists are the most dangerous artists in film because you can like make shit and then it just kind of goes all the way, uh, to it could go all the way to the final movie, uh, if you're just trying to get your stuff approved. And I think a lot of the reasons why modern movies are terrible is because of previous. And it, it's not, again, it's not malicious. No one, it, most bad things happen not because of malicious intent. And it's just because when people are reviewing, the way that people are reviewing these shots and these sequences, they're just watching it on loop over and over and, and they're just kind of nitpicking it, add this, take this out, add this, put this in. And then if essentially what happens is the way you kind of get your shot approved is you just kind of make it the, the hook. Imagine if it's like a song, right? Like a song has a hook. So that's like when mm-hmm. everything explodes. That's the big set pieces, all that other stuff. That's the stuff that's exciting in dailies. That's what gets people excited. But actually, I don't know. Let's, I can't think of the song. But say any song that you know has like a very popular hook. 
And you might, you know, mm-hmm. that you, that's usually when it feels good, right? When you're listening to it, you hear that nice hook, you're like, oh yeah, you know, that's that's my jam. And then you, you might think that's the iTunes preview. Yeah, yeah. And you might think like, why isn't the whole song just the hook, right? Like, I have to listen to this part before the awesome part. Why? Why don't I just get rid of it and only <laughs> listen to the awesome part? And then you realize right. if you do that, like, oh, that ruins the awesome part. The awesome part is awesome only because it was preceded by a different section. And I feel like the way a lot mm-hmm. of things is reviewed and the way people get stuff approved kind of subverts that process where, you know, you just make, if you make your scene the hook, it's going to get approved because it's cool. But then you're going to watch a movie that has a bunch of hooks back to back to back to back. And then you're, you know, you're watching Michael Bay's Transformers 5055. Well, more <laughs> topically, uh, Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah, yeah, like you just don't even know like what you're looking at. Uh, which again, I guess maybe Godzilla vs Kong sounds like a movie that's meant for this nonstop thing, but you know, a lot of movies aren't where they're just kind of, uh, yeah. I mean, that's just my general, I guess, feeling on film. Yeah, general. they, they kind of just come fan. off as dumb. Yeah, I'm just not a big fan of kind of a lot of a lot of most of the movies I've worked on. I, I would say I dislike. <laughs> it's a shame because you've worked on some pretty awesome properties but i guess my question is after all that is um is every single scene previsd or is it just the action pieces that would end up being expensive yeah yeah so it's just those kind of the parts where they need to figure out what's going on uh so they'll Sometimes they'll do like called post viz. Well, they'll do pre viz on top of plates that they already filmed just to figure out which plate to use and what could work. But a lot of times it's kind of the action scenes, the scenes like that might need to go to CG. Because normally what happens is when we're internally doing a pre viz, we output a QuickTime file. That's it. No one ever opens the Maya file ever. That's It's only just a QuickTime. And then that thing is used. Uh, for multiple purposes, obviously, you know, to actually film, to plan out how you're going to film it, because you might have elements that you're framing for that aren't even on screen. And then it's also used to bid out the job to other studios that are actually going to do it. So, right, you know, you're, a lot of times, like you're, say, if you're in a previous studio, you know, they don't even have the capabilities of doing it. But even if you're doing previous for, like, when I did previous for digital domain, we, I believe we did some scenes that we previous that we didn't even do the final post on. It went to a, like a rival VFX house, but we were just doing the previous for that section. And then, you know, for the post effects, it was a different, you know, business arrangement, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, so no one's like using that file as a base to do anything final. Yeah, yeah, like that, all you're really outputting is the quick time. So as long as it looks good, you know, in the quick time, you're good to go. Though a lot of times now there's also tech viz, which is you kind of take your previs and then put the real dimensions of the room that you're in, uh, how big of a green screen do you need, you know, all, just figuring out all these different things that really, it's like a blueprint. Like you go on set, you know exactly what you need to do. You know how far away the camera should be from the actor, all these all this kind of data that we provide. I mean, not on every single show, but most of them actually. Uh, it's gotten more and more popular. Yeah, I mean, if I was a producer, I could see getting addicted to that pretty quickly. 
because it it tells you exactly what you're going to need to book and how much everything is going to cost basically becomes like a, a lot easier to figure out yeah yeah and like yeah i remember on beauty and the beast we they were filming the horse the wolves you know chasing the horse uh i guess bell on the horse and then her dad on the horse it's all kind of going through the same set but their set wasn't that big so once we did the previs they gave us the actual dimensions of the set you know they built it they have like there's a cad file of it and then what we would mm-hmm. do is we would rotate it around and then we would flip it for different parts so it looked like it's much longer than it really is so essentially what's happening Very is sneaky. we keep running up and down the set but that way we can know how long our shots should be we know you know okay our camera's leaving the set we need to cut here you know we you know how you can't film like you know 10 seconds of running for example because say you're like oh we only get eight seconds of running from the end one end to the other i'm just making up numbers here but you know that's the idea that's really interesting i mean given that you work so much with directors could you talk at all about what that's like because i know a lot of people probably never get that close to a director unfortunately yeah the, the, the way i kind of feel about directors is like they because you know there's sometimes you can hear antagonistic approaches kind of between say the director and like the team that's working you know like director wants everything the team that's building it is like i we can't give you everything and it's kind of back and forth but the way mm-hmm. i operate and i always operate this like i just I had to like make it like a policy is that I am ride or die on the director's side. I don't care. So if there's a fight between the director and the producer, I'm with the director. This is a fight between the CG leader and the director. I'm with the director and any circumstance. It's a little bit weirder, I guess in my current scenario, because I'm part of the kind of a CG team normally as a freelancer. See, as a freelancer, that's where this policy, I guess, comes from because the director is really the person that hires me. So the producer pays me. But the director hires me. And if I'm always right. like on their side, I'm always like in, like I'm never working against them. Or like I've had before, you know, a director asked to do something and then a producer comes in, like, actually, you know, let's, let's just try to do this. He probably won't notice. And I kind I don't like to do that because, like, again, it's, it's kind of like a policy. I might lose out on some things, but I had to pick because I've been in some very weird situations where there's like arguing. It's like mom and dad are fighting and like, who do you listen to? Um, <laughs> right. Because if the director likes working with you, they, you know, they're gonna want to bring you back for another job. Well, let's say if a producer likes working with you, well, the, there might be work uh, producing another job with a different director, and he has another person that he likes to work with. Uh, so you know, right. from that kind of more practical end. Um, but I try to also kind of look at it from, I guess, try to be try to imagine myself in that, in their shoes and just be like the person I wish that was helping. Like, you know, if I, if we flip the scenario, who do I wish was helping me out? Because they are kind of, there is a vulnerability there, right? The director is not on the box a lot of times doing a thing. They're describing something to you. They're trying to get you to, you know, understand the idea, but really, you know, the stuff they're selling to their client and showing, they didn't actually make. So there needs to be, right. I think a positive relationship between, uh, you know, I mean, especially between, I think, pre- really, you can element, I think, previs and storyboard into the same element here. Like, I think previs, the previs artists and the storyboard artists are kind of 
two siblings. They may, you know, they're coming from the same source. So I think this would apply as a storyboard artist as well because they also work, uh, you know, very closely with uh, directors, which is they're Mm -hmm. usually on, like, with the director. They're going to do what they want to do. And honestly, the way I feel about it is if the director asks me to do something and the CG team comes to me like, hey, that's too expensive, we can't do that. In my mind, I'm like, well, you know, that's not up to me. So, like, I'm, like, that's, he asked me to do this or she asked me to do this. I'm going to do that the best way I can. And if I make it the best way I can do it, whatever that takes, that's the beauty of previs is it's, it's not going to ever take you that, that long. So, yeah, you know, maybe I'll previs something that actually, you know, it maybe makes it two times more work for the CG team to do because of what I did essentially. But what I did was I'm trying to do the best version of what the director said. And if then there's a problem with technically we got to scale things back as often there is, I'm completely happy to scale back and change things around. But I'm always like, like, you know, kind of like a dog on a leash, <laughs> like looking up at the director being like, are you cool with this? Like you, cause my, cause the CG leads interest usually is to get the job done. Right. And to get it done without, headache or hassle without having to work late and all these are completely noble and understandable things that's like your interest and i can't have the same interest you know what i mean because if that's the interest i'm always going to try to make it the simplest version the simplest easiest to do version of whatever they're saying and we might not get to the cool things where they want to explore you know like I get really excited when the director says, "I don't really know what I want." Like I'm, sometimes people get upset or frustrated. I think that's exciting because that also kind of implies that they're open-minded in a way. And a big thing I like to do is I've done that recently actually is more, more, this is more on film is if someone's describing a sequence to me, right? Or say if we read it, but I kind of ask, "Is there a piece of music that you have that I can?" listen to it doesn't mean that this is the back this is important to explain this is not the music that the sequence is set to it's just a piece of music that you can like recall that has the type of feeling that you want because kind of what we're talking about here is mostly feelings and feelings are much that's why we have art is because feelings are very difficult to describe in words right like saying i'm angry what kind of angry? There's like a million types of angry. There's furious. There's someone who's like angry at themselves. There's self-loathing. You know, there's like a million gradients to any type of feeling that you can describe with words. But I find that music gets me there pretty quick. Where if someone's like, oh, you know, this thing is like a chase. And if they send me the type of music that the type of chase, I can tell it's like, oh, is this a lot of cuts or is this fast or... Is this, uh, is this have an inspirational, is this a chase that has a slight inspirational, you know, violin in the back? Okay. Then, you know, cause we're going to film that a little bit differently, you know, like, cause cinematography is like the language of subtlety and you're doing this kind of subtlety that you're doing with music that, right. Like if you have a great bass line or something, you may not even notice it when you're listening to the song, like the, you know, you don't hear the symbols, you don't hear all the individual instruments. If it's the song is holistically working well which is kind of what cinematography is right like you don't you shouldn't notice the camera the ideal scenario is that it just kind of happens and just you know washes over you 
Yeah, so I mean, I guess if a director doesn't know what they want, it's a chance for you to flex your creativity because suddenly they need a direction and they're asking like, hey, Arson, can you figure this out for me? Yeah, and it's, a, it's fun to do it with people too. And then doing personal work, I've actually discovered what a privileged position that is to be in. It's, it's almost like I could see like – if I was the like, there's been jobs where like, if I I would rather be me than be the director. Like, I think I have more leeway uh, because I get to just kind of propose these ideas. Like, what about this? What about that? What about this? And I have like someone to show it to, and they can give the big thumbs up, thumbs down. They can react. They can do that stuff. But and I've learned this kind of doing more like the kind of personal and kind of like directing like small jobs on my own is when you don't have that person, it's much harder to make a choice. And that's why everything, you know, it's right. like that grass is always greener. Is It seems like, oh, man, if I was a director, I would have done this and this and this. Yeah, well, you think that because you're not the director because all those ideas you have, someone would tell you that's a terrible idea and you have a confidence, <laughs> right? Like, there's a director, there's a producer, there's an agency person. There's no, if all three of those people are on board with my idea, then my idea can't be stupid. But if you are that last circuit breaker, then it really is the pressure is on you. You can propose any crazy idea and you have to justify it and and defend it. So will people go along with the director's bad ideas just because they're afraid of them? Uh, Not really. I mean, I I, I tend to, I mean, there's, I I guess, hmm. Going along with like a – well, the thing is you have to go along with the director. So you you know, you know are making their their vision and sometimes you don't – maybe you're just not imagining the vision correctly. Uh, I think like the only time you should be able to be like, okay, this director is, is bad, like I say if you had that experience, is when it's over. And like two months later, you watch the commercial and you're like – or the movie and you're like, this is horrible. Then you can say that. But in the time, because you don't know where you're going. So it's like being, you know, like on a big sailboat and you have a captain. I mean, you you, got to just hope that they're going to get you there. And all you can do is row in the direction they're saying. Because if you don't do that, then you're definitely screwed. Right? Like then you're kind of completely completely lost. So, And if someone gets to that point, odds are – they, they do have good taste. I mean, I think a director yeah. basically is being paid for their taste. But if, if you personally, like as the previous guy, uh, like disagree with something, are you ever going to step up and say it? Or are you always ride or die, like you said? Oh, no, I always say it. That's the thing. I'm ride or die, but I will always say it. So in the in the okay. context of like we're on a, you know, on a sail ship, be like, hey, captain, my compass says the land is behind us. We should be going forward. <laughs> and if they hear me, I'm like, okay, well, I have a different compass and it's telling me straight. I'm like, all right, fuck it. Well, then, okay, keep rowing. <laughs> you know, I made my yeah, piece. Yeah. And I think my, again, just try to think what would I want if, you know, if I wasn't actually doing the, you know, kind of on the ground work in previs, you could say, right? You have the scene, I have the, their movie that's in their head, I have it in front of me and I'm actually running around in there, you know, looking inside and stuff like that is if I was the opposite relationship, I would want a person that would 
any flag or anything that's wrong or you have an idea or you think something, uh, we can change this, I think this can happen, uh, I would definitely want them to tell me the difference is you just got to have to know I mean, you yourself need to know what is a good idea and what is an idea that you're just like, oh, I had an idea, so I should say it. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I had a good like, I think this is a good idea. And, uh, you know, if you think his idea sucks, you got to have a backup plan that you think would work or else you just kind of look like an asshole. Yeah. Or, or like there's you should never, I think, discount the possibility that you don't fully understand the vision. That maybe yeah. you think this idea sucks, but the way it's going to come together later with the light, all, all the stuff, it might actually be awesome. You might just not be fully, you know, the director might not be able to fully put into words what they're thinking and maybe they will get it there. So it's like, right. you know, I definitely want them to be happy with the whole process from, from the beginning and, you know, they should be kind of, kind of on board. But I think in general, in terms of like kind of, giving your own suggestions and stuff. This is like a big, this was like the, I think the head on my syllabus when I had my class, I'd like tattoo this on my forehead if I could, <laughs> which is, I would just always tell students and maybe people listening that, you know, kind of want to work in this industry or really any artistic industry is uh, you have to change your ego. So some people say kill your ego. I think that's impossible because I mean, part of the reason you're doing art is you do have an ego, right? You think you have a good taste. You think you, I mean, you shouldn't kill that. And it's also unrealistic, you know, and no one's expecting you to become like a you know, Tibetan monk or something like that. Uh, but all you need to do, but it's actually like you can, you can use your ego to your advantage. You just need to redefine what it means. So your ego, like as a child, right? Growing up, this is what most people's ego says is, is it says, I have the best idea, right? That's kind of what your right. ego tells you. So, I'm the person who has the best ideas. All you have to do is change that to be, I am the person who recognizes the best ideas. And boom, that's it. That's all you need. Because mm -hmm. then every time I have an idea and I hear someone else's idea and I do think it's better, while maybe before it would kind of make me a little bit upset or jealous in some weird way, like, oh man, that is a better idea. Huh. Now I'm like the first person to be like, oh, that's such a great idea. That's much better than mine. Screw it. And that actually gives me an ego boost because my ego is redefined as the person who recognizes the best ideas, not the person who has the best ideas. And obviously I try to have good ideas as anyone does, right? But, you know, if you, you have a hundred talented, amazing people in a room, each one of them thinks they have the best idea. This is a disaster. If you have 100 talented people and each one of them recognizes the best idea, in theory, they should come together to one or two ideas that they, most of them can agree on, right? Yeah, no, I, I love that. that. That's a good tattoo. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if uh, the forehead is... Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe like... Place, like but... you know, lower back, I think. <laughs> yeah, lower back is actually what I was thinking. Yeah, um, No, that's really smart. Because, yeah, it, it does help reconcile the fact that, you know, all artists want to be praised and be the genius. But, you know, only some people are truly the genius. And you're going to probably work with those people who put you in your place. And you kind of have two choices to either, like, to make it obvious to everyone that they're smarter than you or to just, you know, recognize that they are. Yeah. And, like, and if, you know, if you kind of do define your ego in that way that still does give you the same ego boost that 
you would have gotten from people picking your idea to being the person that maybe is actually in charge of picking the idea and you dismiss your own idea to pick, you know, someone else's, some like intern said something and you're like, oh, that's an awesome idea. Let's do that. That itself then makes you feel good because you're like, oh, I am the thing that I'm trying to be, which is the person who recognizes good ideas. Because look, I just did this against my own self-interest, you know, type, you know that type of deal, right? Because deep down, obviously, everyone wants their ideas to uh, to be kind of t- taken on taken on board. But really, that's just what directors do, right? Like, what does Steven Spielberg do? Does he hold a camera? Does he? knit the costumes of his characters this what does he do he's just the arbiter of good decisions a lot of people are making decisions around him and he is just overseeing the orchestra and making sure they're all their decisions are meshing with each other his vision's going through but you know the i mean the best people i've worked with as well i think joe burscon is a good example he's probably the best Mm -hmm. director i still work he's the first director i worked with and i still would say probably the best he also does not have any ego at all i mean maybe that's where part of this kind of comes from is just seeing him because you know he's the owner of the studio he's the director he's the owner of the studio and he was also like the professor of a lot of the people that are working there so if you're saying someone has power over and everyone else working there it's definitely this guy but this guy is pretty selfless Mm -hmm. when it comes notes or anything creative he's just looking for the good idea he doesn't care about his own place in there and it's like well if that guy's thinking i mean i'm definitely not better than that guy so i should take (laughs) you know i should learn from that approach definitely learn a lot from that guy in general yeah i could tell no that that, that's great advice for sure um i i think that what would be kind of helpful from just like the previous angle right now is if you could just kind of walk through what the process is. Cause um, it's previous, like it's still sort of a niche thing to a lot of people, but what are the skills that you need to be a previous artist and what's expected from someone with your kind of role? I think in general, you having, I mean, a lot of things are changing now. I think unreal is kind of entering and kind of blowing everything up. So, Kind of, I guess, towards the future, you know, in Unreal would probably be helpful um, to some degree. But in terms of kind of the, the skill sets you want is um, like storyboarding would be great. You know, just kind of just generally cinematography. So that's kind of the art that you're going to be learning and trying to master, which is and there's a lot more subtlety with to cinematography. So there, there's some great books. There's one called uh, Master Shots. Uh, it's like almost like a pamphlet of a bunch of shots you just go through. And, you know, because they all have a different emotional resonance. You know, when you're doing a slight push in on a character who's like, you know, and we're like looking down on them, you know, they're kind of maybe they seem a little weak. Maybe they're having a thought or like, you know, if we really quickly push away from a character as he turns to camera, right, then it might seem like, oh, you know, it's a shock. And, you know, so it's some of those things are very obvious, right? Like, I mean, what I just described, it's almost like a Looney Tune cartoon. You know, those are very obvious. But there's other things that those shades of gray in between, which is most of the shots, they live in this ambiguous zone. And what you're kind of doing with your shots is you're, you're telling people how to feel 
So instead of the what, like the what is made by the screenwriter. They decide what is it, right? Like what is happening? This is going here. People are talking here. And kind of your job would be to, you know, once you read the script, to get through it. Sometimes there's boards. Sometimes you start without boards. A lot of times you're doing them together, like kind of uh, collaboratively. Uh, is what are those kind of sections supposed to uh, feel like? What are you, what are you supposed to feel in this moment? Like you know, like Spider-Man fights Electro. Uh, you know, he's fighting him in Times Square. Like that might be all that it says in the script. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, you're gonna have to like invent this fight. And obviously, you can't have a one tone fight, right? That's why normally your main character is going to be losing in the beginning just so they can start win. You know, it's, you're trying to make some kind of arc, some kind of movement. So it's not all exactly the same, but I would say if anyone wants a great example of just, I think the perfection of this art is just go on YouTube. I mean, you should see the movie whiplash in general, but if you go on YouTube and look at the end scene of whiplash, I guess you would have probably need to see the movie highly recommend it. Is that about the drummer? Yes. Yeah. It's about the drummer, but the last scene of it is so unbelievable because there's pretty much no words exchanged. It's all happening during a live drum show. And in the beginning of the scene, our main character and the kind of antagonist of the film, like, which is JK Simmons. This guy always plays JK Simmons. I forgot his name. Uh, they have a very antagonistic relationship. Like it's the height of their, in fact, they've always had an antagonistic relationship in the whole movie. But at that point it is at its height, like, like, like to almost maybe commit murder, you know, but obviously they're in the context of, of playing in an orchestra and he like sets them up and he makes them look like a fool. And then he kind of comes back and decides to says, you know, kind of F it. I'm just going to you know play my drums and whatever. I'm not going to, go through the movie. But what's going on in that scene is they have this super negative relationship and through playing, uh, they, they, in the end, they're like friends, like, like, and they've made each other's like day, month, year life. Right. And there's almost no words exchange and it's almost entirely done through the way they film the scene. And it's pretty amazing. Filmmakers love that when you, when you can tell things, Strictly visually, yeah, that's yeah, it's almost pornographic for directors. Yeah, and then sometimes you just get one shot that's like I was actually just just watching that part uh, earlier today. There's uh, one of the kind of threads in the film is uh, that you know the main character is this uh, you know he wants to be the best drummer in the world, and his family doesn't really care about his ambition. You know, they don't. I mean, they kind of take him seriously, but not as serious as he is about it, you know, which is he's as serious as like, you know, as any top musician is serious about what they're doing. Right. And yeah, I'm sure many artists there. can relate. Yeah, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And then there's a scene where this guy's playing and he's just so, he's just going, you know, he's like bleeding from his hand and he's just playing so fast that there's a shot of his dad. Who's been a character in the movie the whole time. And it's looking through a glass like kind of a cafeteria door, right? So you're on your camera's on the outside. So it's like it's framed. It's like a frame within a frame, and it's his. He's looking at him drum, and he just gets this expression on his face of like, oh my god! Like it, like you really like it's like he the first time he saw 
that his son is like not just his son. He's like this amazing, you know, top of the world artist. And, and it, nothing, he doesn't say anything. It's just a look. And the camera slightly pushes away. And it's just that. Like that to me is like such a perfect show. It's so simple. You don't need to do a lot of fancy stuff. But like if you time it right and you play it right, you can get these amazing effects from just even, you know, just seeing shots next to each other. I think in general, a lot of people maybe think you need to be really good with cameras and set lots of keys. That's not really the case. You know, most good camera moves, I'd say, are very simple. You don't need to like flex, look how cool I can make this be. You know, again, this is just a means to an end. Uh but I mean, but what you're saying before is like to survive dailies, a shot needs to be punched up to a certain level. Like, do you think Whiplash went through that process, or was that done differently? No, yeah, I that's a great observation. Yeah, I, I think yeah, that's a very good observation. I think Whiplash is in that category of the films where they clearly, they did not pre this that movie. You know, the, the whole movie is shot. You know, see, you know, people are Your playing. favorite shot wasn't pre This yeah, is coming yeah, from the pre artist. You have to watch it a thousand times and try to uh, punch it up and stuff like that. But also a big help is the fact that the writer and director of that movie, it, he, wrote, I mean, he wrote that movie based partially on his own experiences of being in, I think, Juilliard and having this really antagonistic relationship with the teacher, obviously, you know, mm. exaggerated to his own degree. But you, I, I could see that in the camera decisions too, right? Because the cinematographer still works for the director, right? So the, the, right. the director wants something, it's going to be that way. And you can see the way that it's being filmed is in, is such a – empathetic way towards how it feels to be that kid who's drumming that it's all it's almost mm -hmm. clear that the person who's kind of in charge was that kid drum like he knows what it's like when he's drumming for a while there's a part where like he's just going so, like he's you know he's kind of repeating the same thing which you, i think anyone could know when they have to repeat the same action over and over again for exercise something you know you like your fingers start to hurt like you're in massive pain and like it's just this sheer force of will that's pushing you through it. And it it starts to overtake you, like that type of pain. And the sound drops out and then it starts to go into almost slow-mo where all you're seeing is these macro shots of like a drumstick hitting a cymbal and like kind of shaking off of it. And the sound goes low. And it really, the way it's timed and everything, it really brings you into the what it feels like to be that kid at that moment, which is very different than what it feels like to be in the audience watching that kid. I think, I guess that's really the key is getting through what it feels like to be the character. Because if we're just watching stuff happen, it's like a video game. You don't feel it as much. There's a difference between like pretty cinematography and something that captures the authenticity of what the story is about. Yeah. yeah like tell, telling the story and, you know, in as best of way as you can. And maybe even if it, you know, the film doesn't look as nice as it could have because you've made these certain kind of rules. Like Spielberg had a thing when he would shoot things with children that he had, he shoots everything from the knee level because that's how a kid sees and experiences things. They just see people's knees. 
And mm. that's kind of a rule that he had, and then, you know, when he's shooting those scenes. I'm sure there's many scenes where like cinematography, like cinematographically, I don't know if that's a word, but compositionally, that's it, would probably mm-hmm. maybe look better, look cooler, look sexier, look sleeker. But that's not, it's not helping the story. And that's the whole purpose of the whole thing, right? It's just to help the story. Yeah, I mean, it gives you some criteria, I guess, to work with of like how to evaluate whether this is a good shot or bad shot. Besides, because a lot of shots look pretty. Yeah, yeah, because like that's the thing. You look at dope stuff for so long, and a lot of times, like five awesome shots stringed back to back are terrible, and five boring, just standard shots stringed back to back are amazing. You know, the sequence is kind of greater than just the shot itself. Uh, not, not yeah. Everything. So, I mean, how how big of an editor are you? Like, is that something you had a lot of experience with? Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of edited all my previses. I guess in my head, I actually kind of feel like previs really lives in editorial, and I'm just making shots in Maya or Unreal. But the real previs, mm. real meat and potatoes work is in is with the edit, and there's it's part of the same process, right? So they don't have to be necessarily split up. You know, I'm making the shot and I'm kind of editing. I have an idea of what the next shot is going to be, but I'm going to kind of test some other things out maybe. And I'm kind of building it as I go along. And this allows you to do like when you're running editorial as well, while you're previsioning, allows you to do a lot of these extra little kind of panaches to your cameras to get your edits to feel really nice. Uh, because like what? say, uh, Say you have a camera that's kind of just like just trucking like left to right. You know, you're just kind of cameras locked. It's just like someone's literally just pulling it on a dolly going left to right. And the next shot, the camera is rotating heavily from left to right. It's just like rotating like somewhere, right? Or panning somewhere. Well, mm-hmm. if you're going to cut between those two, what could be nice is in the, if in the end of the last shot, you know, your, your camera's just, you know, trucking along. But right at the end, the last five frames, it starts to rotate a little bit. And you, it, but you kind of smooth it in that it's so fast and it's so subtle and it's at the end that you don't notice it when you're looking at it. Like, you wouldn't really notice it. But it makes that cut feel so much better because you've already started that rotation in the previous shot ever so slightly. Again, that, you don't really notice. But it's like these little kind of things and – I don't know, when I'm kind of planning out a sequence, I'm planning it out in, like, I kind of see an edit in my head of how it would work together. So I kind of have a hard time separating the two. Like, whenever I'm not doing any editorial, I'm just providing long shots of stuff like that. I kind of feel that it's not even pre-vivid. I just feel like it's, like, kind of its own different thing. Yeah, you feel more of, like, a typical CG guy. Well, like an, yeah, like, an, like a camera animator. Like I'm just exporting you tons of this stuff and then the editor is doing the storytelling stuff, which is great. And again, in that same ride or die thing, once I know, you know, that's this and that's how the project is going forward. Cool. That's great. You know, let's, we can, we can do right. that. Well, when you get, when you like, when the script first gets discussed, <laughs> are you doing the storyboards? Are you working with the storyboard artist? And then I guess like how much of the, the fight scene, for instance, is like you 
planning it out because that involves choreography that involves like set design so I, I guess i'm curious like are you being given these descriptions of the scenario to then turn into cg or are you helping create that fight or choreography as well yeah i mean usually we especially like fight choreography we are doing that like on the previs end um sometimes you start with the you know sometimes you just the script there are no boards yet sometimes we're working together with storyboard artists and you know there's kind of some back and forth and again you know they're kind of just suggestions of what you should go for and once we're in previs you, know, you can play around with a lot more but i guess example i could bring is it's on my uh, reel which is this uh, fight between the beast from beauty and the beast and these wolves uh so yeah i actually saw that like uh like that was kind of became my specialty uh like in film for a bit was was violence uh even though i don't (laughs) i wonder you were so successful not not non-violent person uh but with that like all all i was told by the director was he's like yeah it just needs to be cool just fight you know again this guy has to worry about a whole you know two-hour movie so this is not his magnum opus here uh but he's like you know look look at it in you know the, the animated version what it looks like obviously it looks it doesn't it's essentially looks like motion graphics like it's like very graphical not in representational but he did say specifically i want this scene where like the guy has you know both of his arms like you know kind of almost like in a loop like up his chest and there's like a wolf under each arm and it's like trying to bite his face and he's like holding them back so he that's all he said so i was like okay cool i know that i need to eventually get there and that scene is in there you know when the guy's fighting on the ground there are he's holding a wolf you know with his arm and he's trying to bite his head uh so that that the director specifically requested that but he didn't say when or where or exactly what to do but yeah, then the rest of that is, I mean, there is an element of, I guess, fight choreography and uh, the way I kind of approach fights is a little bit different than how I approach most other things, which is I like to do a lot of blocking and more planning. But with fights, I like to do it straight ahead with no plan of where I'm going, just kind of action and reaction, right? I mean, you have a plan in the beginning when you start animating, but... So on that, where the, a bunch of wolves are biting him, you know, he's like running forward, a wolf jumps and bites him. Okay. And I'm literally animating straight ahead. So I don't, I'm not blocking anything. So the wolf. That's another question I had, like this animation you're doing, I assume that it was mocap because you said you have experience with that on your site. And I was like, this would be too much work for someone to hand animate. But when you say straight ahead, it sounds like you're doing keyframes. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, that was all keyframe animation. Um, yeah, I, I mean, recently I've worked more with mocap, but this, that was, yeah, that was kind of maybe five years ago. It's a little much less. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of work. Uh, yeah, and but it's, I mean, it's pretty, pretty fun. To, I, I really like kind of you can get lost in doing those. And uh, what's nice when you're doing the straight ahead way is you're kind of acting and reacting in real time, right? So I'm like doing it like, okay, the wolf bit his shoulder. I'm like, oh, what is he doing? He probably like scream out, like, ah, and then he's trying to grab, as he's grabbing him, I'm already, I've already animated a wolf that's like running to him. And then by the time he reaches him, just wherever his hand happens to be, I'm like, 
oh man, now this wolf is going to then come over. The, and then in the end, it looks like this like very kind of choreographed chaos where he's throwing all these wolves around and it feels, it does have a naturalistic feeling to it. And that's because mm-hmm. it is in essence, a naturalistic animation where the, the beast is reacting to the wolves as if he doesn't know they're happening because I kind of don't know they're happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? As I'm animating, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always wondered how this stuff came together and I always assumed like anytime there's choreography with a fight, they brought in some black belt jujitsu expert or some Kempo karate dude from some temple somewhere. And it turns out it's the previous artist the whole time. Well, yeah, I mean, I think like when it's like real actors doing, you know, crazy stuff, yeah. they probably do it. Yeah, they definitely have choreographers. But yeah, for like uh, all the CG stuff, I mean, if you think about what's the hardest part of, uh, you know, acting it out and like a choreographer, that stuff that they're doing, it's really doing it in real time. Like the performance, you know, to being able to actually do that is amazing. If you take the time out of it, it becomes a much more uh, nerdy, headier task than, you know, than it seems, right? Because you have infinite time. You can just kind of look. You don't have to, you don't have to have a stage presence or anything like that. Luckily for no, me. No, for sure. That's a good point. But still, you fooled me. It, it looked like a karate master choreograph, choreographed some of this stuff. Well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um so yeah i guess just on a practical level like if someone wanted to get a job as a previous artist what would they need on their site like what would be the credentials to get a first job yeah you mentioned like character animation uh, i'm assuming maya is the default software for this stuff yeah and i mean if you can get stuff you know some experience with unreal that is gonna obviously be a gigantic gigantic help because uh, more and more previs is switching to unreal and it's a, just a matter of time until it's all in unreal uh and it's already, mm. it's already happening even a lot of the film previses are now done in unreal and um, so that's definitely good software but in terms of this is actually one thing that's really awesome about if you want to be a previs artist which is a little so say, you know, you want to be a rigger, for example, you need a really good 3D model to rig and all this other stuff. What's nice about Previs is you don't really need that much stuff. There's enough stuff kind of for free online you can find or, you know, spend a couple of dollars to get some couple of assets. But, you know, you can have a free rig of a character in a fight and just Previs a fight. Like do it um, a couple of different ways, you know, like a one-shot version. Could, you know, do it super cutty, super long. You know, there's so much variety you can have, uh, and and that's where really, really you show your skills more so than like a demo reel for previous is usually longer than for other things, just because you don't want to just show your shot out of sequence. That's a waste of time. You want to show your entire sequence, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how good it looks. Like if you film it well, I mean, honestly, even if you have like a just like your iPhone camera or whatever. You could film scenes, you know, you can practice and film scenes that way. And then you can see, you know, like cutting on action, the 180 rule, like all these little slight things can, you know, build up your skills. And I think, yeah, after that is just be a practical element of being comfortable enough inside of Maya, you know, using the other tools and all that stuff. 
but again, if you if you don't have any kind of my knowledge now, I would say we are kind of starting without that. Probably makes sense to you know learn how to animate there. Still, you know, it's still a good program to know, but I would delve just straight into Unreal that scenario because that is kind of the perfect previous tool uh, compared to Maya, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen your personal stuff, obviously, and. I'm amazed by the scope of the projects you seemingly crank out. I mean, the one that I talked about this morning with you, Baba Yaga, it was like, it was like five minutes long. It was character animation. There was a house that turned into a chicken, but you know, like the average animator to do five minutes of character animation would be like a, it'd be a whole team. It wouldn't be one person. And I know like maybe you had a few people here and there, but, was that mocap? Was that character animation? Like, yeah, that, that was pretty much you... all all mocap. Um, okay. Yeah, that that was pretty much all mocap, and so that was done. Uh, I was kind of lucky to get into the Unreal Fellowship, where they kind of epic. You take a month, and they kind of help teach you Unreal and show you the different tools and all this other stuff. And while you're there, you have to make a little <laughs> short film. So that was the short film I made when I was there. So. Uh, I think the program was four weeks. I mean, the first week was really like learning. So I would say in total, and this is still pretty amazing, that whole short was done in three weeks. Um, yeah, that is amazing. It doesn't look, you know, it doesn't look like a perfect short. Like, you know, it's not the level that, you know, I would want it to be if this was like a real, you know, short film. You know, there's problems here and there. There's flick, whatever, all these little things. But they are relatively minor and just in unreal you're able to crank out so much stuff where i mean i think there was like more than 80 shots in there and just to open that stuff up in maya and close it up again would (laughs) just take so long take three weeks yeah 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 i mean i would i would love to hear how you like get into the unreal fellowship because i actually looked it up when i saw it on your site today and applications are closed but I think uh, someone else from the mill got sent there and I was directed to talk to them about unreal stuff. Yeah, I think there is, I mean, you can just apply. Like I've applied for like a couple of times and kind of didn't get it. And I kind of kept showing more and more kind of interest in unreal. And uh, I think kind of through the company, they were able to kind of get me there as they're kind of trying to get people in the company to, be more and more comfortable in Unreal. I definitely got got very, very lucky and very grateful uh, for that opportunity. That was was very useful. Is that an in person thing? Apply, uh, and they don't take necessarily like there's people they take that don't have any 3D knowledge. You know, there's all sorts of people in that program. It's not just crazy CG nerds. You know, there's people who are producers. There's directors that have never really touched a computer outside of Facebook. And, you know, and then there's CG pros and they're all kind of like, it's pretty interesting, you know, of all these different people all together. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming like you had a competitive advantage as far as what you created because you're used to cranking out these sequences in 3D. Did everyone else make a, a short film of the same length or quality? Like what was the average output well, I mean, from something there, like there that? There were some other really good ones. You know, again, there's some people that already have you know, unreal experience and you know, everyone is coming at a different point. So 
I don't know if it's necessarily fair to kind of just compare on the quality because again, you know, we're all coming in at different points. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, in terms of length and shots, I think I had I had the most amount of shots, and I, I do think yeah, like my, kind of my background helped in that. But also, what helped me is the fact that that entire short I had already storyboarded, so it was just execution. Uh, there was no dis- uh, like I mean, there's a lot of discovery in terms of the shots and stuff, but the fact that I had it all boarded right from the get go really you know, made the life a lot easier for me because I knew exactly what I needed. Yeah, it's, it's like a pre-pre-previs, I guess. Well, maybe, maybe that's the previs is just post-storyboard. Without, like, Unreal, how long do you think that would have taken you? Oh, just, I still would be working on it now. I think that was, like, <laughs> half a year ago. Oh, yeah, with, without a doubt. I mean, just, again, that amount of shots and files, it just would not even be, it just wouldn't be possible. I mean, just the rendering. I just, yeah, I can't even wrap my brain around it, to be honest. I could just say that it definitely would be impossible for me to do on my own. Wow. Yeah, you should gun for a sponsorship from Unreal if you keep yeah. popping out quotes like that. Oh, yeah, I just, uh, I'm, their, I'm their biggest preacher now. I mean, the thing is, it's true, though. There, that's the, the, you know, sometimes in life, you get people who are as good as their marketing. It's rare, but they seem to be one of those places. Yeah, and honestly, they seem like good Samaritans. Like they give so much stuff for free to the community. I think you told me about that video game that they canceled. I forget what it was called, but they had this like AAA game that they they shut down, and they released all the assets, like character models and environments, for oh, free. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Paragon. It was called. Yeah, Paragon. Yeah, yeah. That's another thing. Like if you're just kind of trying to get into this stuff, if you open up Unreal, you can download example files. So for me, that's the best way I learn. I don't, I don't learn very well when I'm watching a tutorial of how to build something from nothing. Uh, I mean, that's very useful mm-hmm. for some things, but I tend to like more opening up a thing that works and then looking and digging around in there. Uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, fixing a car engine versus building a car engine. It's, you know, <laughs> to get my head around the car engine, I think fixing it would be easier for me than going to a car engine factory and seeing how they build it. That's overwhelming. Yeah. And, and that's what's more great useful. That. Yeah, they provide you, you know, like the Weta thing they did with the Meerkat and the Hawk. You know, they have the file. You have the files in the rig. You have everything in there. And it's just amazing. You can, you know... At that point, it's really up to your curiosity for how far you get. I know. Sometimes I forget that there even are other game engines that companies use. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like, why? There's yeah. no way that they could have the same level of infrastructure. Yeah. there's. I guess Unity is the closest, but they're not. I mean, they, they, they don't have, uh, I don't think, as much as what Epic has to kind of give out to people. I mean, I think they're the Epic is trying mm-hmm. to focus more and more on film and being like a VFX tool, and like they're they're very serious about that. Uh, I think Unity mm-hmm. does have those possibilities, but I think they're still more concentrated on the gaming side and you know integration with browser. You know, there's all these other there's a whole other industry that these guys initially come from. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know of any competition for the whole like virtual studio pairing. 
I, I think it would be really hard for a company to even catch up to what they're doing there. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, I don't think anyone's gonna catch up. I'm curious what is gonna come out with uh, uh, MetaHuman and all this other stuff. You know, again, all these tools are getting easier and easier and easier for normal people to use, which is just wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's a good time to be in the industry. Um, I guess the other unreal thing that I want to mention was just your your short, the furnace of the birds. Oh, right. You you told me that uh, despite the fact that it won a bunch of laurels for you, it was a waste of money. And I wanted you to just elaborate on that for people. <laughs> right. To me, it's like, oh, okay, you know, sure, you put in a lot of money for all these awards, but it seemed like the strategy worked. But how come you think that the money would be better spent? Yeah, it was not that, that you know, the, that short was the waste of money. It was just. Uh, sending it to the film festivals, I think, was right, right. Of money because that, uh, you know, so it's not cheap, right? You know, most films have, you know, they'll, they might have like you know, a couple thousand dollars, maybe two thousand, three thousand dollars to send to film festivals, and that's expensive. And my question is, what the hell do you get for that? And I, I really don't think you get anything, it doesn't matter. So, everyone. Everyone has a film festival nowadays. Like you just just look outside and look at the, your street corner. You <laughs> type that into Google. You can find a film festival that's like the twenty fourth in Lexington Film Festival, and they'll they'll take your thirty dollars to apply, and then they'll send you an email and they'll say that you've been selected. It's awesome, and then you're like, what the hell is the what is this? It's almost like you're paying for an ego boost, but it's like there's not even. I mean, you know what I mean? It just, it seems like they're, I kind of feel like they kind of take advantage of people wanting people to see their films. So they're paying people to see their films essentially. And I think if you're okay with that, if you're doing that, then doing things like Instagram or Facebook ads to your Vimeo link, for example, is a million times more cost effective and will get a million times more people to look at it. Like a friend of mine, I think he, when he did a short, they had about almost four thousand dollars for it. kind of the, the festival run. That's what they call it. They call it a festival run. <laughs> well, if they took that amount of money and put it into just people looking you know, ads for their Vimeo, you they would have mi- millions of people would have seen it. I mean, uh, or maybe I would I would say in the hundreds of thousands for sure. <laughs> now, does that mean you are going to get success? Not necessarily, because right. maybe it's terrible. Uh, maybe a lot of people say, this isn't actually going to help you out. But if what you want is to be able to see it, I think the film festivals are honestly, I think they're just a scam of taking money out from people. And then they feel like they can say like, Hey, I got into <laughs> like Oklahoma, you know, homeless shelter film festival. Not, not, not to be, yeah, yeah. You know, these these ridiculous categories of film festivals where you're just like, what is this? It's like, this seems like a film festival made by one person for their friend. I feel like the perception <laughs> does work if that's what you're after. But as far as like financial or tangible uh, follow-ups to that, like a job, yeah, that doesn't actually happen. It's just literally this icon. Yeah. And like, it, I think the key, the kind of the goal, I guess, with people who make shorts um 
is you know to get like a Vimeo staff pick means a million times more than winning gold at like again Uncle Bob's discount uh, Emporium slash Rome Festival. Uh, if you get like a Vimeo staff pick, that obvi- that means significantly more. That's a pretty big deal. Um, and then the way you do you could do that is by if you have a lot of traffic go to your short film, then they will watch it. And then they can decide if they like it or not, you know. But obviously, the more people like it and watch it, engage with it, it you know could raise that chance. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed, but it raises that chance. Um, in a way, it's almost like saying you qualify. You know, you apply for a film festival and you qualify for, say, the Venice Film Festival or like Cannes or. I would say those film festivals are legit. So I don't want to you know bad enough all of them. Those ones are real, but there's like six of them, and they're very hard to get into. And because they're so hard to get into and people desperately want to say, I got into a film festival, you have all of these millions of other film festivals that just kind of pop up again for, I I really think this is mostly just a racket to make money. Um, Well, you're probably right. It sounds like the racket is working. Yeah, it's working. Yeah. I mean, as a business, it's pretty amazing because you really don't need anything to do a film festival. You just need people that are, I mean, right now we could say this is a film festival, right? We're talking about film. This can become (laughs) just a film festival. (laughs) How much should I charge? What's the the average entrance? $10,000. Yeah. Because then people will feel, oh, if I have to pay that much, that means it's really exclusive. Yeah. That's a funny thing about psychology. There's really no like factual basis to it, but the more you spend on something, the more hoops your brain will jump through to justify it. Yeah, yeah, that's but, uh, uh, definitely using it to their benefit. For sure. So, so your advice basically is like apply to the legitimate festivals, but skip the rest. Yeah, and again, if you, if you apply to the legit, like it. Yeah, yeah, I guess apply. Yeah, if you apply to those big, big ones if you want, you know, to be seen. But I think really, because it's from an out, you know, film festivals are from like the '60s. Like this is the whole different universe. The whole point of a film festival is to get people to look at the thing you made, right? Because you made it and it's on a VHS tape in your house, and you're like, I have a huge dilemma. I have this movie idea. I think it's good. It's on a VHS tape in my hand. And I want people to see it. And I don't know enough people to invite them to my basement to watch my movie. So I need <laughs> help. Someone help me. Well, that that problem is over. Like, none, we don't have that problem. So right. that that's a, it's like a solution for a problem that doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, I always kind of thought of it as more like a resume builder for a filmmaker. But that's not really like an employee-driven job. Like if you want to be a director – yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can really do it. Yeah. Oh, you got yeah. you got third place at uh, Oklahoma West. That's pretty good. We're we're gonna, we're gonna you know what I mean? That's never gonna be the side <laughs> factor uh, of you know of anything. It, you know, it might be you know if you want to drive, you can do spec spot. There's a million things that you can do to actually help you in that in that pursuit. I don't know if that necessarily will, but you know, I'm not actually. Yeah, no, I just thought that was good advice. I mean. I feel like it's almost taken for granted that you do the film festival thing. So it's kind of cool to hear yeah, someone I mean, who's I, actually I, done I it. I spent a bunch of money and I did that. And uh, I thought that was a complete waste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Which is just because you know it, it won some awards and and like you know people were, oh congratulations. It's like all right, like what? Like you, I got an email. Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like okay, you got an email. Yeah. So you want a thing? All right. <laughs> cool. Wow. Yeah, that's a bit of a mismatch there. But uh, maybe now is a good time to plug your short. If any, if anyone wants to watch an awesome award-winning short film, <laughs> check out his piece, Furnace of the Birds. Award-winning. It looks like if uh, if Sam Mason took acid at Anchor Watt and had a computer next to him, this is probably what he would make. It's It's super cool. <laughs> Sam Mason was sitting next to me while I was making this, so that that works together. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is we initially were making a kind of a project uh, together, and then kind of bran- branched off from there. But yeah, that's definitely the most inspiring artist I know. That he kind of pushed me a little bit into doing these kind of solo projects and just like you don't need this is the idea you don't need permission from anyone to do something just do it just like you know there's this kind of want to be like you know i want to go up to someone and be like hey do you think this is a good idea and they're like yeah it's a great idea and I'm like okay cool and it's like well what does that do like are they gonna actually work on it no they'll just say it's good just make it just put on your headphones shut up and just make it <laughs> i like that uh approach it's working for you. That's good advice. Yeah, I didn't know you actually knew him. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's, he. I I thought Instagram was something that where people posted uh, pizzas that they ate on Insta. I didn't know there was a whole art world. <laughs> I didn't know anything. Sam is the guy who taught, showed me all that stuff, and uh, definitely very much inspired. I mean, some of that first stuff. I mean, that character is Sam Mason's character. He made that bird character. Um, okay, that, that, so yeah, I'm not crazy. I, yeah, I definitely that, recognize that is, the style. Yeah, <laughs> in, the, in the credits in there, that the, the bird character is designed by Sam. Uh, I did the big kind of the big bird god character. But yeah, because again, we were working on one to kind of film together, and it kind of branched off into two, two different um, two different things. <laughs> That's so cool, man. I didn't even know it was like a, a shared universe kind of thing. <laughs> well, not, not really. Yeah, it's like a, it's a bizarro, bizarro Sam Mason world. But I, that's why I've kind of since been, you know, kind of going into other, other looking kind of stuff or kind of just trying to look or play around with style and stuff like that to kind of, you know, maybe kind of, you know, be a little more unique, I guess, just because, you know, since Sam is kind of the guy who kind of got me into all this stuff, obviously some of that first stuff I was making was heavily, heavily influenced by Sam and his work. Cause I, I love his work. He's one of, I think maybe the best uh, visual artist uh, working right now. I think he's pretty freaking amazing. But, you know, it's at the same time, cause you know, the person kind of who inspires you and helps you along. You're also like, I, you know, I don't want to like copy his, style and stuff like that and i kind of struggled a little bit in the beginning where i'm like it's kind of similar but i do I, we just have a lot of shared interests as well so there's kind of overlap on that um but since but, then i've been kind of straying what into kind the of interest? Dark universe I like yeah no, i mean history honestly like your your thing looks super original so i don't 
the last thing I thought was this looks like a ripoff of anything, but it's not like a ripoff. The character is Sam, like it's his model, it's his character. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's okay. quite literally uh, that thing. Um, but yeah, that gotcha. was fun. And I'm gonna do a next another short called <laughs> I'm gonna do called Furnace of the Foxes. That's gonna be my next. <laughs> It's Next gonna time. be, uh, yeah. It's, is it gonna be similar, but you're swapping out the Sam Mason penguins yeah. with some arson yeah. foxes? There, it's it, the concept is kind of like you know, even the first of the birds is, you know, if birds had a religion in their own mythology, what would their myths even be? You know, like, what would that be? I just like kind of these kind of thought experiments almost. So. There, it's like, you know, this holy egg that starts life. And in the end, it's like, you just, it's an egg in the woods. And it's like, that's their mythology. It's very loose. I want to make it much more structured for the one of the foxes. But it's also a similar concept of like, what would foxes worship? You know, like, what like what are, what would be the myths and legends of fox? You know, they could be involving their evolution from what kind of animals they were before. What kind of are their biggest predators? What they're known for, you know, being like kind of tricky and stuff, you know, try, trying to bring those elements into it somehow. Uh, but yeah, I know, I know that sounds really weird. It doesn't make any sense. No, I'm, I'm actually dying to know. I don't know anything about Fox psychology. So I'm I curious. I'm just kind of making where the current that. state of the art is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I honestly love to hear the thought process behind, especially the more abstract stuff, because it's clear that there is one. And I think like, if it's good art, it'll have a certain logic that's outwardly apparent, even though you don't know what it is. So yeah, yeah that's, that's to hear like it from a, you. Yeah, is cool. Yeah. You put it very well. I think that, that that's like the ideal that you want, right. Is like that, that you can follow it, but you also don't know what's happening. But you can still follow. That's that's like this weird in between world. But it, it's definitely there. I mean, maybe do a little BTS on uh, like what you were thinking. It seems like you're setting up some kind of world because a lot of your art has a similar theme, and maybe that's not like a conscious world that you're setting up. But hey, I don't know if Marvel's world was consciously connected at first either i feel like they kind of just said hey at some point we could sell more comic books we connected these stories right yeah i mean sometimes it's just like the assets i have where it's like you know i've already built a bunch of stuff and i'm like well i'm gonna reuse this i'm gonna you know i'm gonna take this guy from this thing i'm gonna put a different hat on him and see what that <laughs> yeah i mean you're really good with cloth so Maybe just give him a, a makeover. Yeah, yeah, the clock thing is well with Marvel's designer. It's I honestly think just like two hours with watching a tutorial, Marvel's designer. I think anyone could get to the same uh, point where I'm at with Marvel's designer. Like, I don't. I wouldn't say I know it very well. You know, there's most people probably use it know it better than me, but I know it just for the purposes I need it for. That's kind of my attitude. With a lot of the software is. I just want to do the thing I want to do out of it. I don't care. I don't care about anything else about this. I need this. <laughs> like, I need X. Give me X. Don't tell me about Y. Don't tell me about Z. Uh, just to get yeah. 
I think that's also like kind of necessary because this industry requires like 15 different softwares to, to fully like master the recreation of the real world. And I think like it's impossible to, to know all of them the way that like a real user would. Right. But usually you don't need to usually like it's only for like one project or to get this one thing that the other one wouldn't do. So yeah, it would be like insane yeah, to try and actually learn all these stuff. You're going in every kind of direction possible. And you could, always, there's always more stuff to learn about anything, anything you're doing. Um, yeah. So I guess uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was freelancing because that was kind of, that was kind of like the unifying concept for this site originally. I got really into freelancing. I was like, holy shit, like I can't believe that you can make so much more money. You can take time off to work on stuff that you care about. You can kind of like be in control of your own destiny. There were, yeah. there were so many things about it that I kind of really loved. And you seemed like you were pretty hyped on it as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I in, get in the same kind of same vein as you. I was a big, big fan of freelancing. I, I, I like the idea that uh, you're kind of your own boss in a way. I mean, you obviously you have a boss wherever you happen to be working at the time, but you mm-hmm. kind of have a flexibility. Also, one thing, yeah, with like financially speaking, like you can, you can raise your rate so much faster as a freelancer than you can as a staff, right? Like if you're Mm-hmm. If you're a staff or entry level, right, you can't just be like, hey, I want two times more money now, like in two years, <laughs> right? You can't just say that. But you can totally say that as a freelancer. as because And you're always testing the market. So if, I don't know, if everyone is trying to hire you at the same time, I mean, there's fluke accidents. Don't take it you know, too much too hard. But if people are always trying to book you, right, then that's a good sign that it's time you, you could raise your rate. Because right? that means that you're in demand enough. You know, it's like that supply and demand thing. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of like that kind of aspect of it. I also love just going into different studios, and uh, yeah, especially for my time. You know, I was saying before at Nathan, uh, meeting all these freelancers at that time. I was like 19 or 20 years old. That you know now at like thirty, I'm coming back. I'm seeing some of these friends I haven't seen for like eight years or some you know who is working at some other studio that I didn't know about, and it's, that's kind of a nice element. You kind of meet people, and then you kind of re meet them, and you re meet them in different places, different settings. Uh, so I really like kind of that aspect uh, mm-hmm. of it as well. Uh, and yeah, and the thing is, like you can just yeah, I just think you have much more much more freedom. And you have, I think, all the right incentives. So I used to be, I think, just generally in freelance, hmm, I'm trying to think of how to put this. Take like your, your incentives are aligned with what you're doing more. Where, so say someone, you do a job that's much, you, you finish a job much faster than they thought it would take, right? Maybe you actually – there's scenarios where you could lose money when they try to unbook you. you. You can make sure to tell them that, hey, you can't do that. Or you can work something out. Maybe you have another job that actually is beneficial to you. You're like, okay, cool. Finish this contract. I'll get another one. 
Uh, right. Well, if you're doing that, you're it, it's incentivized that people will want to hire you. Like you're like while I think in staff, depending on the positions, there there I've you know met people that have this feeling that no matter how fast I work, there's always going to be more stuff coming. So like who who even cares? You know, it's like this kind of more a little more of a Debbie Downer perspective that I don't think it, it just yeah. can't thrive well. Like it won't work well in freelance because every job as a freelancer is a job interview. And I think that it's really good at keeping you on your toes and keeping you kind of very serious, you know? Uh, yeah. You're replaceable. Yeah. yeah, You're very replaceable. So you have to make sure you earning your spot there on a daily basis. And and I think it, and it kind of feels good, you know, if you are in your spot there on a daily basis, you're like, oh, that's, that's, you know, you feel like you have some, some worth, <laughs> I guess. And well, I guess it's the same with a staff job, right? You have a salary. It's also, you have uh, worth. It's but I think bad. also like the, the money part feeds into that. Like if you're charging a lot of money, you feel this pressure to deliver <laughs> Yeah. or else yeah. you're like, or else I'm not going to be able to keep charging money like this. But when your yeah, staff, exactly. like you've already negotiated that and no matter what you do, it's, it's already set in stone. Yeah, exactly. If someone like comes in like, Oh, you know, can you help out on a job like at night or something like that or anything, anything sort of like that. Or even if you have like, Oh, I have to work on two jobs at the same time, anything like that. If you're a freelancer, you're getting financially compensated for all of that. So, you know, for example, yeah. There's no such thing as weekend work for a freelancer. It's just work, you know? <laughs> uh, like, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to need you coming on Saturday. I'm like, awesome. Like, okay, that's just another day. Like, then I'll <laughs> take one day off in the future. Like, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, but I used to also kind of I, – I took advantage of it a lot when I was, uh, you know, when I first kind of started out where I would – I just work as hard as I could. I sometimes like work in the moonlight with another job. You just try to save up as much cash as I can. Like no personal life, just work, work, work nonstop. And then, uh, then I would leave and I would be like, all right, I'm taking two months and I would just go to like, like backpacking or something like that. And then just not worry about computers, not think about it, come back with no money and then start the process again <laughs> and then leave and then go back. And I kind of lived that, kind of lifestyle for a little bit, which I found to be very pleasant, especially now that we can't travel anywhere. Good memories. Yeah. That, that's very aspirational. I feel like that, that's sort of like the pitch for freelancing, like in a best case scenario, it's like, Oh, I get to travel the world, make all this money. I'm sure most people's experience isn't always like that, but yeah, it makes me right. excited to hear stories from people that, do you take advantage of it like that? Like, I'm curious where you've traveled. Um, or just like for like, just like vacation or you mean like working wise? Um, not really working wise. Just like, Oh, where, where are some of your favorite places that you've been? Yeah. I've, uh, been to like, you know, went to a lot in East Asia to like, uh, Hong Kong, Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Vietnam, Japan. I think Japan is my favorite. I've, I've been to Japan a total of six times now. Uh, that's big. And the thing is, I I don't really like anime, which surprises people. People when you tell people you've been to Japan a bunch of times, they assume that you love anime. 
but I just love, <laughs> I just love, is the, what's interesting about Japan is it's the only place in the world that is hyper modern, but is in no way westernized, if that makes sense. Right? Like most mm-hmm. countries, when they get more modernized, right, less traditional, we, we kind of almost assume modernized mean westernized, like become more western like. And Japan is this amazing, like, bubble in the middle of space where they are more modern than we are or they are in, like, Europe, for example. But mm-hmm. they are 100% Japanese. And from beginning till the end, they have their own culture, they have their own traditions. And they're, they're hyper modern, but also traditional. It's very, it's a really interesting kind of place. You see a lot of these interesting, contradictory things going on. Uh, well, it's part of the inspiration, the furnace of the bird stuff. Is I love to watch like religious ceremonies in these places, and I never know what's going on, but I just like watching because I just I can't look away. I'm like, this is so cool. I don't know what the hell is going, and I know that. I don't even want them to explain to me the reason behind the rituals because I know it's going to ruin it for me. <laughs> like if they tell me what the real reason is, like it's going to be less than how amazing it looks, right? Because they have gold, incense, everything. So it's like that feeling, I guess, I was trying to kind of recreate, which is like, I don't know what's happening here or why, but it looks like it kind of makes sense <laughs> to people who are doing it. But it's kind of, I'm just going to keep looking at it. That's a great summary, actually. I love that. Yeah, I've, I've never been to Japan. I don't know, like, how long do you think is the minimum you would stay there? Um, well, I mean, the thing is, you can stay. I mean, you're fly, You're going to be flying into the U.S. So I would say, ideally, you want two weeks, I think. I mean, obviously, you could do longer. Like I've yeah. done there before, like, on the trains. But... I think if you can do two weeks, I think I think he'll be a happy camper. Yeah. Yeah. No, two weeks is a good standard candle for vacation length. Yeah. At least internationally. Yeah, I think the first time I went, I that's it's funny. The first time I went is actually because of freelancing is why I went to Japan by accident. So I was in I was I wanted to go to France. And I was working in LA and I flew into New York and I had my stuff ready. I was going to go to France because uh, my family is in mm-hmm. New York. So I was in New York and then I get a email from, it was, I think Jurassic world was starting up and they're like, we're going to need you next week. And I was like, ah, oh, okay. I'm not going to France. I didn't buy a ticket yet. So I was fine. So I fly back to LA and then they're like, actually it's been delayed by a month. I was like, what? Like I flew back all just because of this. Uh, and I was so angry. And I just like, I was like, I, there's no way I'm flying back to New York to get to. There's no, like, I, this is insane. And I just went on Google Maps and I was like, what is the France to New York of LA? And I was like, it's Japan. <laughs> <laughs> like distance wise. That's amazing. Across. So I just, Japan, I didn't know anything about. Japan. I just had a hostel for one night. It was like I'll figure it out, and uh, it was a uh, pretty fun. It was actually it was two weeks. So I did it was like a week in Tokyo, and a week just kind of taking the trains to different towns, and that was that was great. That was that was good. Were you sleeping weeks, on the train? It was like two months sometimes. Yeah. Compared to normal. Wow, work. that's a good story. And then you came back to work on Jurassic World. 
yeah, which is yeah. pretty cool in itself. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. Yeah, because I was obsessed with Jurassic Park when I was a little kid. That part was pretty cool. They did have a suggestion box, and my dad's suggestion was that they should uh, they should have barbecues of dinosaurs like on the island. Like, why don't we <laughs> eat dinosaurs? Which I thought was a great idea. So I did put that in the box, but it's, it, it looks like it got lost in the cracks. Actually, yeah, the what the hell? Cool got canceled while I was working, so. I worked on a pre-final version. Like some of my sequences are in this one, but there's some of them are not. Like there's a lot of stuff that was cut out from this. Wait, what got canceled? Uh, Jurassic uh, World. Like it was when I was working on it, it got canceled. And the just, whole movie? Yeah, the whole movie got canceled, and then it, it resurrected a couple of years later. Um, and I didn't work on that one, but still a lot of the sequences did make it i think they rewrote i don't know exactly what happened but um there are a lot of big scenes that are not in the movie that were uh initially but that always happens that seems like a weird movie to cancel to me like that's yeah. an ip that would probably print money pretty reliably <laughs> yeah i think maybe yeah i don't know exactly what the reasoning was but it's actually it's hilarious the way i found out I was the first person on my team to find out that the movie was canceled. So I, there was like a main previous floor and, you know, this is kind of one of my earlier jobs and they had a bigger team. So they had like kind of the leads and the previous suit and stuff uh, uh-huh. the floor next to production. And then the rest of us were, uh, yeah, there was like five of us. We were like on a different floor and it was kind of an outside like pavilion type of place. So you can kind of just go upstairs so I went upstairs uh-huh. to get a coffee. They had a coffee making machine in their uh, fancy room. We didn't. So I went to get a coffee in the production main office. And as I'm pouring a coffee in, the art director just comes out of a room. It looks like he's covered in sweat. And he's like, guys, the movie's just canceled. That's just what it is. And I was just looking at him like, what the fuck? And then I like don't fully i'm like is that real like was that a joke you know because you know maybe there was some joke that i wasn't in on i just walked into the room i don't know what's going on like looking around so confused and i go outside and there's like a bunch of guys like just chain smoking like cursing on their phones and i was like oh this is i think this is real this movie just got canceled and i go into the main room and i go to where the previous soup is he's not there and the previous lead is there and i was like Hey, I think this movie just got canceled. And she quickly like grabbed me away. She's like, shh, shh, shh. Uh, this, I'm <laughs> in the meeting right now. He's in the meeting. Don't say anything. No one knows anything. He's still in the meeting. And I was like, well, there's like people chain smoking, cursing outside. I'm pretty sure the movie's canceled. But she's yeah, like, don't, say give away. don't say anything. So I just went downstairs. So while everyone is still working on their shots, I start like scrolling for job postings. <laughs> uh, I think I had like a two-hour uh, heads up until they told <laughs> – they officially told the people. But the original wow. – the art director was pretty clear on it. He just ran out. He was like, movie's canceled. The life is over. Everyone's going to die. Those people's boss was in the meeting where this guy just came out of, and they were told to keep it a secret until – you know, because they probably had heard some you know machinations of this maybe before, but it was just a very funny scenario. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty funny. Do you know why it got canceled? Uh, I think it was like maybe Spielberg had some 
issues with parts of the script or as it was. And it, I mean, I think it's, it's like traditional stuff. You know, people have disagreements. They change stuff around. Um, I mean, I, I actually, I thought that movie was bad, personally. Uh, you know, it's a perfect arson movie to work on because it was not very good. And it just had a great name <laughs> that it helped me. But it's just, I mean... I remember the storyboard artist who storyboarded the last part of that movie. I told him, I was like, this is, this is like, this is fucking stupid. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is like, this is, insane. and he had this kind of look on his face. of like, I know, like, I know this is very stupid. So. What do you yeah. I, I agree that it was stupid, but as far as like your portion of it or like, you know, the sequencing, there were some badass sequences, so yeah. I, I mean, like, you, I think you can kind of segment your association with it a little bit. Like, like my part was good, but the script yeah. definitely flopped. Yeah, I mean, even my part. You know, I was like, how much of it is really my part? You know, I'm working part of a big team. There's a lot of us, and uh, you know, there's the director, and then it's going to the. Obviously, Spielberg was not the director, but he's the producer, so he's he's really the higher, highest voice, I would say, probably there. So, you know, it's going through all these kind of different people. So, I mean, I'm not like ashamed of it or anything. I don't think it's bad. I mean, I think it's cool to have that experience of having worked on it, and like it was really cool seeing those balls they had because they had them in like real life. They were building them there. Um, oh man, stuff like that is like you know cool, but. I'm definitely not, you know, taking any, uh, I don't know, not drinking the Kool-Aid as far as, like, is the, the movie is. I mean, I think that other movie was, like, really bad. <laughs> uh, considering I was a gigantic Jurassic Park fan. Like, the, the end of the movie is, I mean, it's, it, I don't know, it just seems like it was kind of came up with, like, 50 lines of coke into a writing session of, like, what happens in the end. The T-Rex saves the day. Did no one say, like, why would a dinosaur save the day for no reason? It's like, because we saw him in the last last movie, and people liked him. So now he's going to be... It's, like, it's, like, it's, it's completely insane that this, this rabid animal with the brain the size of, like, a walnut is, like, making these calls yeah. of, like, I'm going to save the people from the other dinosaur. Like, I... Oh boy, yeah. that sounds like it was uh, written after a focus group. It was like, what did you like about the original movies? I love the two rocks. Yeah, <laughs> Jurassic World and uh, The Force Awakens probably came from the same line of thought. Yeah, yeah, it's like there's like a group of people. I think so. Say if uh, say if like you're known as like the greatest uh, musician in the world, right? And someone comes to me and is like, hey. Arson, you should be more like Justin, right? And they mean yeah. in terms of music, right? And then yeah. I just dressed like you. I just bought the same <laughs> I bought the same hat, I bought the same socks. And I'm like, oh, I'm doing it, right? Am I doing it? And it's like, no, you're I think that's what the problem in like a lot of these Hollywood films is they're doing that to try to copy a movie. They're just putting on the clothes and pretending, hey, look at me. I'm Jurassic Park. I mean, the reason that they were iconic was because of the things that you can't just copy and paste. 
Yeah, it's like all these like kind of scenes and like kind of tension and you know like you didn't see the dinosaurs all the time nonstop and you know it's just kind of that's part of you know it's like that Steven Spielberg showing the shark thing right most of Jaws you don't have to see the shark I mean but that requires a level of self control uh, which I guess that that's probably a very important aspect of a director is to have a self control. To not eat your candy, <laughs> to not just you know get wumbo and everything you know get like che- extra cheesy fries. Get wumbo. I love that. Yeah, I think that was my problem with season two of Stranger Things as well. Is they they just went like balls to the walls and threw demogorgons like out the ass in every scene. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it kind of, it kind of right? did the Jurassic World thing. Yeah, yeah, are scarier. It's a scarier thing. If if you don't if you don't see and if you kind of going back to what we talked about before if you go back to like why is why is that scary if you don't see it shouldn't it be scary if you do see it well it's like that's the feeling of what it feels like if you think something is coming for you and you're scared right you normally don't know what you're scared of right someone's walking around alone at night and they're looking around their shoulder they're not a hundred percent sure what they're looking it's not like I'm looking for you know. Some you know gangster guy named John. He's coming after me. Like no, like you're looking around. Like you're people are nervous or like you know there's like a you know assassin coming to to kill you. You don't know what they look like. That's part of the element of fear, and that's part of why you film it that way is to make people empathize with that perspective. Right. Yeah, that brings it full circle to what you were saying before. Yeah, man. I feel like I've taken enough of your time at this point. Uh, it's been awesome talking to you. I yeah, feel like I've had so much. You didn't really know me too well when you said yes, so I especially appreciate it. But uh, yeah, you, you've had a hell of a career, and it seems like your life experiences are just as cool. But congrats on all the success, and uh, thanks again for coming on. So wh- where can people find your work? Yeah, I mean, I guess my website is probably probably the most uh the place where you see like just kind of the shorts and all the other stuff in general so it's just my name which is ridiculously long.com so arsonism.com um and yeah, there you a few tries to get the spelling right yeah and there also there's kind of stuff on instagram uh which is that's no, no mostly like kind of the stuff i'm building and making i'm kind of throwing out uh, on Instagram, it kind of keeps it. It's actually nice. It kind of keeps you from because you have all your other work that you kind of once you make some stuff, you're like, oh wow, this is better than I thought it would be. Then the next thing you make, you feel like the standard is higher now. <laughs> when you're like, oh man, yeah. I could have maybe put this out. I would feel good about it if I put it out like a month ago. But like now, I can And actually, that means that you're making some progress, right? That's like a good thing. It's a, it's a negative thing because kind of holds you back in some ways but it's positive it means that it's getting better hopefully yeah it's good but i always admire those people that put out work every day and do like every day thing consistently because i was like i'm always like how come i can't just like keep working on this for another day right right exactly yeah so some some things those yeah come into account it's like a lot of yeah a lot of different machinations yeah but uh you should check out a site he's he's literally got I don't know. You have like 10 sections on here. 
You have so much work. Is it too long? And uh, so many big movies that have. Uh, <laughs> how did you put it? How did you describe an oh, arson wow. movie? Uh, my average rating on Rotten Tomatoes is 36%. And uh, I have worked in the year 2015. This is my big claim to fame. The year 2015, I would say one of the worst years for film. I don't Maybe some good movies came out that year. I don't know. But 2015, Adam Sandler's Pixels came out and Fantastic Four by Josh Trank. I am lucky to say to have worked on both of those movies. Yeah. Most people work on their top five best movies of all time, right? Like statistically, it's very unlikely, right? For a movie to be made that goes in your top five is gonna is almost right. already zero. For you to even work on it, I mean, the percentage is almost nothing. But I think I've had right. to work on two out of the worst five films I've ever like seen in my entire life. And I, I think that was proud, you know? <laughs> I've never seen Fantastic Four, so oh, oh yeah, that's- maybe I'll I'll plead the fifth and say that it's better. It must be better than people describe it. Uh, Pixels, probably a piece of shit. Yeah, well, yeah, I in in almost in some ways, Pixels might be more fucked. No, but no, they're both they're both just insanity. I mean, yeah, it's they're pretty bad. I have to say, they are ba- as bad as people say. <laughs> Sorry to hear that, then. Oh, it's cool. That's I pretty I'll Fantastic Four, so it's fine. Don't worry about it. Well, Lego Batman wasn't bad. I, I honestly like. That's I'm the biggest Batman. advocate. Yeah, that's my favorite <laughs> movie that I think I worked on. Is, is Lego Batman. That was, that was the original Lego movie was like such a surprise hit, yeah. and I would I would vouch for it all the time to people, and no one believed that it was actually a good movie. Yeah, so good. Because yeah. it, it, yeah, it sounds like something that would just be like a cash grab. Right, but it's it, yeah, was it was hilarious. By, it was original. Do you ever watch Robot Chicken, or have you ever watched? It? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Lego Batman was directed by the guy who's behind Robot Chicken, and that's why it's kind of in. A, oh, really? It feels a little bit like a giant robot. Like it's just ridiculous. Like it just keeps going, and like these like little events. Like you can see the link once you kind of realize it. That guy who was the animation director was very important for the first Lego movie as well. I think that's like a big kind of element. Is these these are guys who are pros at making little stick figure, you know, cartoony guys look really funny and you know, yeah, they're they're awesome. Is that is that Phil Lord? Uh, that is, no, Chris. Phil Lord, Chris. Yeah, Chris Miller and Phil Lord are the directors of the first one, and then it's Chris McKay who's the director of Lego Batman. He was the animation director on the first Lego movie. And he is the guy behind all the robot chickens. And uh, uh, yeah. Okay. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it definitely has, he has that still that sensibility. You could see it in, in Lego Batman. And he was an awesome director. Like he memorized everyone's name and he actually knew what type of things people are better at doing that, you know, he was very involved with the animated. I mean, cause that's where he comes from. So he, he was a really awesome guy to, to work with and just talk to. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine that the head of robot chicken would be pretty chill. He doesn't <laughs> yeah, seem like he takes himself too seriously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, man. It's so cool. You got to work with that guy, but uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on and see you on Slack tomorrow. Yeah, man. All right, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Uh...